Hello and welcome to podcast number seven for English 264 Online. In today's podcast, I'll be talking about George Gordon, Lord Byron, and Percy Bysshe Shelley, two of the second generation romantics. Studies of the Romantic era have traditionally focused on the six major poets, three in、uh, so-called first generation and three second generation poets. The first generation poets, whom you've already read, are William Blake, William Wordsworth, and Samuel Taylor Coleridge, and they're differentiated from the second generation of Byron and Shelley and Keats by some specific factors, which which make them really different、uh, in terms of their Interest in terms of their focus on the world, in terms of their output, in terms of the, their work. For instance, William Blake was born in 1757 and died in 1827 at the age of 70. William Wordsworth was born in 1770 and died in 1850 at the age of 80. And Samuel Taylor Coleridge was born in 1772 and died in 1834 at the age of 62. And for all three of these poets, one of the most、uh, Important formative experiences in their, in terms of their work, in terms of their view of the world, was the fall of the Bastille, the beginning of the French Revolution in 1789. They were all relatively young. Wordsworth and, and Coleridge, for instance, were、uh, 19, 17 years old at this time, caught up in that initial fervor.、Um, Blake was somewhat older, but nevertheless, as you saw from your reading, very interested in the events in France, hoping that they were harbingers of. New liberty in England. Byron, on the other hand, born in 1788, was only one year old when the Bastille fell, and therefore the fall of the Bastille, when he was one, meant almost nothing to him, presumably, and even less for Shelley and Keats, who were not even born yet when it occurred.、Uh, Shelley was born in 1792, and Keats in 1795. Also, the second generation of romantics are are similar in that they all died. Young, particularly young compared to the first generation.、Uh, Byron died when he was thirty-six. Shelley died when he was thirty. Keats only lived to be twenty-six years old. He was the last of the Romantics to be born and the first of the Romantics to die. And while in the first generation of Romantics, certainly in Wordsworth and Coleridge, you generally have a,、um, a revolutionary period in their youth. Which transforms over time into a more conservative period in their old age,、uh, so that they、um, become more conservative religiously and politically and philosophically, and to some extent aesthetically. With the second generation of romantics, you don't have that、uh, transformation in that they none of them lived long enough to become conservative.、Uh, they were all, especially Byron and Shelley, the authors for today, very. Radical in their views,、uh, and and continued to be so throughout their lives. For the second generation, the only event which would correlate to the fall of the Bastille for the first generation would be the Battle of Waterloo, which occurred in 1815. But the impact of that event on them was quite different from the fall of the Bastille. Certainly for Byron and Shelley, the Battle of Waterloo tended to be a harbinger not of hope and liberty, but of Um, a return to the status quo from before, to the return of oppressive powers of church and state, so that when、uh, Napoleon was defeated、um, and imprisoned on the island of Saint Helena, kings were put back on their thrones. The church was once again ensconced in a position of authority throughout Europe.、Uh, it was the so-called Holy Alliance of Great Britain and Austria and Prussia that had defeated Napoleon.、Um, they aligned themselves. 
specifically with the, the previous status quo, to turn back the clock of revolution, turn back the clock of liberty in, in the view of Byron and Shelley. And so you tended to have a much more pessimistic view of the world, a much more cynical or downbeat view, even though they maintained their principles and, and often to the extent that they could, acted on them. Another significant difference in the formative experience of Byron and Shelley and Keats to some, ex to some extent is that they, also, they were primarily writing during the Regency period. The Romantic era is an aesthetic principle, a philosophical period. Um, the Regency period is a, a title for a political period. Um, George III was King of England from 1760 to 1820. He had the second longest reign of any monarch in English history. Sixty years, uh, a, a tremendously long time on the throne. But during the last ten years or so of his life, uh, from 1811 to 1820, he had periodic bouts of insanity when he was not competent to be the king. There was not really any proviso in the British Constitution to handle this situation. And so his eldest son, the Prince of Wales, the Prince Regent, who would become George IV upon his uh, assuming the throne after his father's death, acted as the king, as the Prince Regent. Uh, and so the Regency period refers to a time when um, the eldest son of George III was making political decisions, was affecting policy, was uh, affecting the tone of, of London court, court and society, and it was generally a time of a great deal of flash, conspicuous consumption, a great deal of, of, of excess of various sorts, quite different from the period that came before, and quite different, different from the period that came after with the Victorian period, which was in many ways a reaction against the excesses of, of the, the fourth of the George. Byron, who was certainly the most famous of the poets in, in England during his heyday, during the Regency period, uh, was a perfect match for the, the Regency period uh, in that his, his youth, his exuberance, his uh, wit, his cynicism, all tended to match the, the feeling of the public at that time, particularly the, uh, the poetry-buying public. And he was an immediate sensation. Uh, he was the very first... Uh, superstar romantic. To give you an example of, of uh, the difference in terms of, of popularity, William Blake perhaps sold 25, 30 copies of Songs of Innocence and of Experience during his lifetime. If you wanted a copy of that book, you would have had to have contacted him directly. He would have had to have printed you a copy, um, hand-painted the pictures, hand-sewn the pages, bound it, and then deliver it to you. An, an extremely expensive book, as you might imagine, from the work involved with it. So a very small number of people actually ever bought a copy of it. Wordsworth and Coleridge sold 500 copies of their um, lyrical ballads, first volume, over the course of two years, which was um, actually fairly respectable sales for a book of poetry in those days. Byron, on the other hand, sold 10,000 copies of one of his poems, The Corsair, on the first day it was released. So it was a, a phenomenal acceleration of popularity. Examples of his popularity are not too far from here in, in that there's a town south of Macon named Byron, named after Byron. Uh, there's a stained glass window of uh, depicting Byron in the Hay House in, here in Macon. Um, he was a, a popular figure not just in England, but also on the continent, in Europe, and also in, in uh, the United States. One aspect of Byron's work that made him particularly appealing and, and fascinating for his public was the assumption that he was always writing about his own life. His own adventures, his own thoughts, um, were thinly veiled, if at all, in his poetry. 
Um, for example, starting on page 359 in our book, uh, we have excerpts from the third canto of Child's, Child Harold's Pilgrimage, a continuation of uh, um, the poem which really made him famous, uh, Child Harold's Pilgrimage Canto the First, consisted of his own uh, accounts of his adventures, uh, his tours of, of Greece and Albania, what he saw, what he felt on that trip. And in the Canto the Third, he continues those adventures after the breakup of his marriage. He had married Annabella Milbank, uh, an um, intellectual, um, uh, mathematically inclined woman of good family breeding, who was probably the least appropriate woman he could have married, and their marriage was not happy. Uh, they found many ways to make each other miserable. Scandal surrounded him about rumors of affairs, most of which were probably true. Uh, the most scandalous was um, gossip that he had had an affair with his half-sister, um, which was also probably true, uh, although to somewhat in his defense, if you can defend acts of incest, he had never been raised with her as his sister. They, he not, did not meet her until he was in his late teens. They were raised separately. She was a daughter from his father's uh, previous marriage, but certainly the, the appeal of violating that taboo of incest probably had something to do with it, as well as his sense that she was one, the one woman of all the women he was involved with who actually, he thought, understood him. In any case, Byron's marriage broke up. He was, went into self-imposed exile uh, afterwards in 1816, on the continent. Um, he went to Switzerland for some time uh, where he and Percy Shelley uh, lived and collaborated on work. And, and Percy Shelley's wife at that time, Mary Shelley, actually she was not married to him yet. Uh, he was already married to another woman, Harriet Westbrook. Um, Shelley's Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin, uh, the daughter of William Godwin and Mary Wollstonecraft, who was with Shelley at that time and became his second wife, wrote the novel Frankenstein when she was 18 years old as a result of all of their collaborative thoughts and, and discussions of, of poetry and the reading of ghost stories. And it's a great story, but I won't talk about it here because it's not actually part of our assignments. In any case, um, on page 360 in our book, a good description of Byron's tendency to, um, to project his own internal turmoil onto the world around him occurs when he's describing a storm in the Alps, or in, um, on his travels. And he writes on stanza 94, Now where the swift Rhone cleaves his way between heights which appear as lovers who have parted in hate, whose mining depths so intervene that they can meet no more, though broken-hearted, though in their souls which thus each other thwarted, love was the very root of the fond rage which blighted their life's bloom and then departed, itself expired, but leaving them an age of years all winters, war within themselves to wave. This passage, which ostensibly intent, uh, describes mountains on either side of a river, becomes a description of his marriage and the breakup of his marriage, and a, a um, readers enticed by the, the secrets of what happened behind their, their closed doors um, were fascinated by these readings and, and wanted to, to continue to buy them and support him. He was extreme, extremely popular. He goes on to write on stanza 97, after just trying to describe the, uh, the storm, at, at the night storm. Could I embody and unbosom now that which is most within me? Could I wreak my thoughts upon expression and thus throw soul, heart, mind, passions, feelings, strong or weak, all that I would have sought and all I seek, 
bear, know, feel, and yet breathe into one word, and that one word were lightning, I would speak. But as it is, I live and die unheard, with a most voiceless thought sheathing it as a sword. One um, characteristic typical of the second generation of Romantics, and, and perhaps a distinction from the first to some extent, is their tendency to, to look at uh, the limitations of language. Where does language break down? What can language not communicate? If words are a symbolic system to convey thoughts, and it's perhaps the best symbolic system we, we have for, for many kinds of exchanges of ideas, where does that fall apart? Where does that break down? What can you not put into words? What is either the ineffable, that which is so wonderful, so marvelous, you cannot speak it, or the unspeakable, that which is so terrible, so dreadful, that you cannot put it into words? Or merely, what ideas are incommunicable? And Byron, who has such a facility with language, uh, who tends to pile on descriptions, tends to pile on words, the catalogs, uh, soul, heart, mind, passions, feelings, strong or weak, is also fascinated with where, where he cannot speak, what he cannot communicate. On the next page, on 361, Byron continues uh, and as part of his appeal to his daughter, Ada, whom he has left with when he left England in the marriage, whom he will never see again, who went on, in an interesting historical side note, to become a collaborator with Charles Babbage, uh, on the inventor of the difference engine, which was the forerunner of the modern computer, to become one of the first writers of what we would think of today as computer code. He, he says to her, uh, is trying to explain himself and his fame, uh, the tremendous fame he, he earned and saw as primarily worthless because he lost it so easily uh, and saw that it was built not on him but on people's perspectives of him. He says on line 1045, Fame is the thirst of youth, but I am not so young as to regard men's frown or smile as loss or guerdon of a glorious lot. I stood and stand alone, remembered or forgot. I have not loved the world, nor the world me. I have not flattered its rank breath, nor bowed to its idolatries a patient knee, nor coined my cheek to smiles, nor cried aloud in worship of an echo. In the crowd they could not deem me one of such. I stood among them, but not of them, in a shroud of thoughts which were not their thoughts, and still could, had I not filed my mind which thus itself subdued. I have not loved the world, nor the world me, but let us part, fair foes. I do believe, though I have found them not, that there may be words which are things, hopes which will not deceive, and virtues which are merciful, nor weave snares for the failing. I would also deem o'er others' griefs that some sincerely grieve, that two, or one, are almost what they seem, that goodness is no name and happiness no dream. Again, I mentioned uh, Byron's tendency to, to, toward cynicism. And you get in these passages, these couple of stanzas, this strange mix of gloating and self-denigration of uh, this pride in his suffering. Um, one of Byron's quotes elsewhere is that it is, the, um, it is the destiny of all to be miserable. It is the destiny of the imminent to be imminently miserable. Um, this sense that he, through his own talents, through his own gifts, has made himself imminently miserable. One who walks alone, a stranger among crowds of adoring throngs who do not understand him. Uh, and this sense of both fame and separation from it, a very interesting dynamic that one can perhaps assume is autobiographical and based on his own views of, of his, his fame. Although it was not considered such during his lifetime, most, most 20th century, and perhaps 21st century critics would uh, perceive Don Juan as his masterpiece. Um, it is an uncompleted work, uh, 
probably an uncompletable work, one which again draws on readers' assumptions about him. Byron was notorious for his sexual adventures and, and relationships. And Don, Don Juan is the, the term we would normally use. Don Juan is the British pronunciation. Um, Don Giovanni, the Italian pronunciation. Um, Don Juan is the uh, is famous as a ladies' man, and so the reader would assume that Don Juan would be Byron, um, and to some extent he is. Although to some extent, you f you can find echoes of Byron throughout the poem um, in Don Josie, Don Juan's father, uh, who who is married to an intellectual wife who files for divorce, and you can also specifically find Byron in the narrator. And to a large extent, this, this story, this narrative, of which we have only a very small part here, the Don Juan is one of the longest poems in the English language, the narrator is primarily the main focus in his comments on human nature, on the foibles and, and follies and, um, and successes of humans, what, what their, their wondrous nature, their multifariousness, uh, their capacity for, um, for passion and their capacity for uh, self-deception. Note specifically the dedication to the poem. Uh, this was not published with uh, Don Juan during Byron's lifetime. It probably was not publishable uh, in England without uh, lawsuits arising from it. Uh, and in it, he particularly attacks Robert Southey, who was the poet laureate, who was the official court poet of England at this time. But he also um, casts a number of, of arrows at, at Wordsworth and Coleridge as well at the prominent poets of his day. This is, to some extent, his attempt to get out from under their definition of, of what poetry ought to be, to find his own space, uh, to, to find room for his own um, approaches. He attacks Robert Southey particularly as a talentless hack and a toady who kisses up to the Prince Regent in order to get this court appointment. He attacks Coleridge uh, as being in, incomprehensible. Uh, he, he writes on 570, and Coleridge too has lately taken wing, but like a hawk encumbered with his hood, explaining metaphysics to the nation. I wish he would explain his explanations. In your reading of Biographia Literaria, you might certainly uh, appreciate Byron's remark. Uh, in stanza four, he adds, and Wordsworth, in a rather long excursion, I think the quarto holds 500 pages, has given a sample from the vasty version of his new system to perplex the sages. Tis poetry, at least by his assertion, and may appear so when the dog star rages, and he who understands it would be able to add a story to the Tower of Babel. Wordsworth, then, is long-winded and, and crazed, basically is, is, is the assumption he makes here, the, the accusation that he makes here. And he rejects their poetry. Uh, he rejects their approach to poetry. Um, and specifically, he, he stands a ten, contrasts them, uh, these former radicals, all three of them who had um, been lumped together, as you saw in the, in the critical commentary, as the uh, attackers of the status quo in poetry by Francis Jeffrey. Um, in stanza 10 he writes, If, fallen in evil days on evil tongues, Milton appealed to the avenger, time, if time the avenger execrates his wrongs and makes the word Miltonic mean sublime, he deigned not to belie his soul in songs, nor turn his very talent to a crime. He did not loathe the sire to laud the son, but closed the tyrant-hater he begun." The accusation here is that while the poet John Milton, who opposed Charles I for the English Civil War, who called for his execution, who um, was the Foreign Secretary for Oliver Cromwell, 
when that side lost, uh, eventually when Cromwell died and Charles II was restored to the throne, did not try to kiss and make up, uh, did not try to go over to the other side, but maintained his position as a stand, staunch defender of Republican, uh, that is, non-aristocratic uh, non values, of seeing England as a republic. Um, on the other hand, Wordsworth, Southey, and Coleridge are all supporters of, of liberty and, and equality and freedom uh, in 1789, have by 1816, 1820, become members of the status quo, members of the, uh, the establishment. Uh, Southey was poet laureate, Wordsworth was the inspector of stamps for the Lake District, and so had a, had a government position and, and government funds coming to him, which tainted, Byron suggests, his ability to write, and all of them have become more conservative politically. Byron follows that accusation up with a particularly scathing attack on Castlereagh, who was the foreign secretary uh, in, in the British politics at that time. Don Juan is a difficult poem to talk about. One, difficult because we only have a very small part, and second, difficult because it's comic, and comedy, comic writing is, I would say, often difficult to analyze. Um, my suggestion would be to try to pick small parts and focus on them, um, look for patterns, um, look for general commentary on, um, on and satire on human nature. To have done Juin, we find Juin in England, in London, in, in the Regency period. Um, that is the period of, of Byron's fame. And here Byron has the opportunity to turn his satire specifically to, to that world. One brief example is when he describes what a young gentleman's day, what Juin's day would be in a certain social sphere, uh, starting on page 389 in stanza 65. His morns he passed in business, which dissected was like all business, a laborious nothing that leads to lassitude, the most infected and centaur nessus garb of mortal clothing, and on our sofas makes us lie dejected and talk in tender horrors of our loathing all kinds of toil, save for our country's good, which grows no better, though tis time it should. His afternoons he passed in visits, luncheons, lounging and boxing, and the twilight hour in riding round those vegetable puncheons called parks, where there is neither fruit nor flower enough to gratify a bee's slight munchings. But after all, it is the only bower, in Moore's phrase, where the fashionable fair can form a slight acquaintance with fresh air then dress, then dinner, then awakes the world, then glare the lamps, then whirl the wheels, then roar through streets and square, fast-flashing chariots hurled like harnessed meteors, then along the floor chalk mimic paintings, then festoons are twirled, then roll the brazen thunders of the door, where open, which open to the thousand happy few, an earthly paradise of Ormolu. As your footnote points out, Ormolu is not gold, but bronze painted to look like gold. And this stands as a symbol for all of this society, this gilded age, which is not really gold, but painted up to look that way, which is not really wonderful and fascinating and, and enjoyable. Um, but everyone is miserable, pretending they're having the time of their lives. And this, for Byron, uh, is a perfect emblem for this, this social sphere, this social life, um, a world of surfaces and facades with nothing underneath. Like Byron, Percy Shelley was a um, particularly harsh critic of the, his day, particularly the political administration, and um, even more than Byron, an idealist who had a passion for changing the world. 
uh, although one also who um, was often by the later point in his brief life disappointed at his inability to to find listeners to his ideas to his messages one poem of his i want to concentrate on for this podcast is on 399 a sonnet entitled Ozymandias, which arose out of a sonnet writing contest um, with a, a friend of his who uh, was a banker and part-time poet uh, over a new exhibit in the British Museum of a statue of Ramses II. They decided to have a contest writing a sonnet about the statue, and Ozymandias was, uh, both poems named Ozymandias, uh, Shelley's account, the much more famous of the two. He writes, I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Were you to decide to discuss this poem in your podcast, there are a number of directions you might take. One is the structure of the poem. While sonnets generally have one of two uh, forms, the English or Italian form, or the Petrarchan or uh, Shakespearean form, Ozymandias has a very irregular rhyme scheme, has a very odd construction, which is typical for Shelley, and to some extent typical of the Romantics in general, who wish to both return to previous forms and also to stretch and test them and see what they can do to change them. You might also, in this poem, discuss the, the view of both political power and of art, um, there are a number of sonnets by Shakespeare in which he talks about the, the limits of political power to, to rule over time, um, and also poems in which he talks about the immortality of art. This poem takes up or, or alludes to perhaps both of those motifs, but in the end perhaps drops both of them, in that the message on the pedestal of the statue, uh, Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair, meant in the time of Ozymandias, all rival kings can look on the great works of Ozymandias and despair of ever being as great as he. Uh, today, looking at the ruins of the statue, it might mean look at the works of Ozymandias and despair of ever producing anything of lasting effort, uh, despair of ever, maintain, ever, ever keeping uh, lasting fame. That ruin might also refer to the works of the artist, the sculptor, who, although his expression, his attitude still is stamped there on the art, um, that art is in decay, and all that seems to last around that colossal wreck is the desert, um, not nature in the, in the sheltering, um, comforting aspect that you might find in Wordsworth or Coleridge, but the wasteland, and as is typical perhaps of, most, of many of the second-generation romantics, uh, a general sense of uh, downbeat uh, depression at the end of the poems, as opposed to an uplifting message. Similarly, you might see the the ending of Shelley's poem Mont Blanc, uh, also to, to have that sort of resolution in that although the poem celebrates the power and grandeur and sublimity of this natural scene, Mont Blanc is the highest mountain in Europe, uh, the glaciers, the, the general sense, of overwhelming sense of 
the energy and vitality of nature, the power of nature. By the end of the poem, when he is contemplating what it's like on top of the peak, which had never yet been climbed by humans, um, the, the emptiness there and the sense of quiet, is it the, the repose of power or is it nothing? He ends that poem on 396. Mont Blanc yet gleams on high, the power is there, the still and solemn power of many sights and many sounds and much of life and death, in the calm darkness of the moonless nights, in the lone glare of day, the snows descend upon that mountain, none beholds them there, nor when the flakes burn in the sinking sun, or the star beams dart through them, winds contend silently there and heap the snow with breath, rapid and strong, but silently. It's home the voiceless lightning in these solitudes keeps innocently, and like vapor broods over the snow. The secret strength of things which governs thought, and to the infinite dome of heaven is as a law, inhabits thee. And what were thou, and earth, and stars, and sea, if to the human mind's imaginings silence and solitude were vacancy? This question at the end is a startling one, uh, one that one would not expect to find in the works of Wordsworth, where he begin, he questions the entire presence of something, that secret life, that one life in nature, and wonders if there is perhaps nothing there. And he ends the poem, he resolves it with no resolution, asking an unanswered question, uh, leaving it up to the reader to contemplate the possibility of uh, the projection of the mind onto nature, as opposed to the perception of the mind in nature. In your writings on Byron and Shelley, there is a multitude of, of approaches you might take. Um, my suggestion would be to focus on one poem, and since many of these poems are quite long, a, a section, a single section of one of the poems, and see what you can do to perceive how this generation of romantics differs from the ones before, and yet how they might still be called romantics, um, how the, uh, their ideals, their values, their approaches, their themes uh, are both similar to and different from what we've seen before. It's certainly the case that Byron and Shelley would not write the way they do if it were not for Wordsworth. Uh, Wordsworth is both a model and um, a competitor, uh, both a mentor uh, to some extent in how to see nature and also uh, an overwhelming presence that they need to, to distance themselves from to be different from Wordsworth. Um, so again, you might look at and discuss these, um, these relational, these generational differences between the poets. Next time, we'll end the, the studies of the Romantics with um, John Keats and Felicia Hemans before moving on to the Victorians in, in the subsequent podcasts. That's all for today, then. Thank you, and goodbye.